welcome to the uh, spring conference. Uh, we're happy to uh, welcome Dr. Marvin Olasky to be with us today and to speak to us on this topic of journalism. Uh, Dr. Olasky is the editor-in-chief of World Magazine. Uh, he's the author of 23 books and uh, previously was a reporter for uh, Yale Daily News and the Boston Globe and has taught classes in journalism for 25 years at the University of Texas at Austin. He is author of the book uh, Reforming Journalism, written in 2019. And uh, we're thankful to have him with us today. Please give him a warm round of applause to welcome him. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, glad to be here at Mid-America Reform Seminary Spring Conference. Your professors and students have taken good care of me. Last night I had the, the pleasure of dinner with seven students and faculty members. Uh, sitting directly opposite me was Professor Strange. He told me so many interesting things about church history that I later did what journalists do. I Googled him. <laughs> and, and I learned that many Alan Stranges have garnered some attention. The first shown, you got it, is a 19, <laughs> very good, a, a 1930. <laughs> you, you've Googled yourself, right. The, uh, no, no, as I learned last night, Dr. Strange is a, is a fan of the Chicago Cubs, as well as perhaps from a distance by admiration, the Boston Red Sox, which is the team I grew up with. The, uh, the first Alan Strange shown is that major, major league shortstop from the 1930s, and the second is, is Dr. Strange here. But here's what I thought was strange about the information. Uh, the shortstop, Alan Strange, had the nickname Inky, Inky, I-N-K-Y, because he worked as a printer in the off-season. And that, of course, is the nickname that every scholar aspires to uh, and your professor deserves because he, have, he has been very productive in scholarship. <laughs> so I hope to leave you this afternoon with some deep, profound thoughts. But if I leave Professor Strange with a well-earned nickname, I feel I've done some good. So thank you, Inky, and thank you, the rest of you, for being here. Now, journalists who write long feature stories learn to start with a gripping lead, such as I have just provided. Um, we then follow it up quickly with a nut graph, not because it's nutty, but that's the essence of the story, like a nut. Uh, and then a roadmap, where the story's going. So here's my nut graph. Every story has a worldview. Christians need to develop a biblical worldview and then put it into action. American journalism history shows us how to do that because American journalism started as Christian journalism. And we're in trouble because reporters have largely abandoned the Bible. But there is a proven way to recapture and apply biblical understanding to the news. Now, here's my roadmap through three lectures with slides that are prepared. Lecture one is a rapid-fire introduction to journalistic practice with an emphasis on how we can report at street level, not sweet level, and how we can combine sensational facts with understated prose, not just yelling at each other. And lecture two is a journalism history highlights reel, how American journalism moved from the official story of colonial days, which was essentially public relations for the governmental powers, to the corruption story that dominated much of the 19th century, how all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. Journalism in the 20th century moved to the oppression story. Big private institutions are the enemy. We need human gods within government to deliver us. And in the 21st century, we've had an odd melding of the official story and the oppression story. I'll go through this more, but just call it O&O for now. And then lecture three will take us from theory to practice with an examination of some reporting during the past seven lean years. And if we have time, I'll do what my dinner companions last night requested. I can tell a little about how God moved me from Judaism to atheism to communism to Christ. But before I get to that, let me just take a few minutes to explain why Christians in training to be pastors or other church leaders should care about this worldly stuff. When, uh, when Luke uh, Walcup invited me, he asked me to touch on how to live out of our identities as those who belong to the household of God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
and meditating on Luke Walkup brought me to a reporter named Luke, who lived 2,000 years ago. And Luke's gospel begins with his explanation of why he's writing. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account. That's a, that's a good roadmap for a journalist. And that's exactly what Luke did. He followed up his first long feature story, the gospel according to Luke, with a second called the Book of Acts. And one of the scenes that reporter Luke provided us has the Apostle Paul visiting Athens and finding that its citizens would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That, as you know, is in Acts 17. And that sounds like today, but America now is Athens on steroids. Uh, sometimes literally, but at least figuratively. <laughs> and so our question is, how should those who belong to the household of God deal with today's current rush of information? In 1985, when Neil Postman wrote this book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, the threat was that we would have frivolous lives and die laughing. And since then, the torrent of news, augmented by Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook feeds, it's become a flood. And Postman's concern about escapism is still important, but here's a question for the present. With stories about shootings assaulting us day after day, will we die, not laughing, but crying. And lots of us fall into the world weariness evident in this lead to an Aussie news story a couple of days ago, another day, another horror. And happily, the Bible offers an alternative to despair in four Psalms that are special to me. Maybe they can be for you as well. And I'll give you some key verses from those four and, and what they mean to me. Okay, first from Psalm 131. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. So that great and marvelous has obvious theological implications, but we can also apply it to the news. The Bible does not tell us to avoid big news from some other part of the world. It tells us not to be occupied with it. We can read headlines without spending time dwelling on actions over which we have no control. And God keeps an infinite number of balls in the air, but most of us can handle just one, like me, or maybe two or three, for some of you. We need to concentrate on what we can catch and not what will cause us to drop our specific responsibilities and callings. Second, from Psalm 73, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? That pretty much covers it all. Uh, direction in this life the hope and expectation of eternal life, and the Pascal's wager conclusion. What other choice do we have? When sensational media make it hard to be calm and quiet, it's time to read the Bible and take comfort in God's guidance, God's promise, God's uniqueness. And then third, from Psalm 92, and there are many parallel passages, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked spout like grass and all evil do is flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. And that teaching runs clearly against contemporary wisdom. You may be familiar with psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg, who became prominent for suggesting that autonomous thinking is the seventh and highest stage of human intellectual development, and that's making ourselves into God. The highest stage is actually dependent thinking that recognizes our reliance on him. And long ago, Augustine said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. And today we might say that if we're more desperate to keep up with the news than to keep up with the Bible, it's not the gospel we trust, it's our Facebook feed. And then fourth, two familiar verses from the beginning of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. And in 2021, our 24-7 news services pour out speech, but as you know, they don't glorify God. And yet we can also learn something from news that shows the sinfulness of man. The Bible, as you know, teaches that when man turns away from God, he acts like a beast. Ignore beastliness, and we ignore essential evidence. If humans apart from God are not beastly, then Christ's sacrifice for us was unnecessary. So, keeping that biblical teaching in mind, I'm now going to turn to Slideshow 1, or maybe we can call it Journalism 101. And as, a, as you can see up there, understanding journalism starts with realizing that every story has a worldview. 
And this goes contrary to what some reporters learned maybe a generation ago, basically news from nowhere as if a machine was writing it. Well, no, every story has a worldview of some kind. I'll give you something simple. You've been a newspaper fire story. Okay? There are firefighters. They're the protagonist. Last night they battled the blaze, an antagonist. And because of high winds and low water pressure, those are obstacles, it took two hours to extinguish the flames. So there's their mission. When we teach students, we talk about, just so it sounds right, PAMO, protagonist, antagonist, mission, obstacles. That's the basis of, of every story, in a way, that moves people. Storytelling. Uh, protagonist, and then just an order of logic here, protagonist, mission, antagonist, or antagonism, and obstacles. And that's very different from report writing. This is one of the first things when we have our World Journalism Institute classes we have to tell students. A report is a report. It's a, it's a series of factual information and observations. A story, in some ways, has to have some movement in it. It has to, have, it has to, it has to uh, uh, enliven the heart as well as the mind. And PAMO sets it up. That's what reporters instinctively learn how to do. Maybe not instinctively, but over time they learn how to do it. You have to have tell a story. And a story, a good story, has a protagonist. It has some antagonism. There are obstacles. There's a mission the protagonist wants to fulfill. There are obstacles that he or she uh, have to do it. I'll give you another simple one. Okay, Jack and Jill and the hill. Uh, protagonist, mission, obstacles. Okay, uh, Jack's the protagonist here. Jill also. They have their mission, right, to go, out, go up the hill to fetch a pail of water, and then Jack falls down. And the question is, why does Jill go tumbling down after him? This is a certain mystery. And was that a right or wrong decision on her part? And here's the thing, that different worldviews will interpret that story differently. You know, it could be patriarchal. You know, Jill is not a klutz like Jack. Jack has gone tumbling down the hill. Why does Jill have to go tumbling after him? Well, because he's the patriarch. He's in charge. It's, 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 it's masculine superiority. She's stuck with that role. Or a feminist interpretation. Well, he's a klutz. She is much more competent. She feels sorry for him. Her compassion reaches out, so she goes tumbling down after him. Uh, or maybe it's just an accident. You know, life is full of coincidences and accidents. There's no providence. So a different worldview, even in a story like that, depending on how you tell it and how you examine it. Give you another story here. Three little pigs, right? They have a mission. Uh, create dwellings. They have, a, they have a, a very heavy breathing antagonist, the big bad wolf. <laughs> and the obstacles, you know, a couple of them are lazy. They may have a certain lack of realism about the dangers in the world. They think they can just build houses of straw or twigs or things like that, as opposed to the one who knows you need a brick house because he understands as an antagonist, the wolf. Um, now we go to the Bible and we see parables. Good Samaritan parable. Um, you know, the protagonist is a Samaritan. The mission is, you know, he's going in a particular direction, but because he's compassionate, because he's really doing what God's people are supposed to do, even though he's a Samaritan, uh, he's willing to change his mission. He goes out of his way to help the, the person who's been mugged. Uh, what's the antagonist? The antagonist is selfishness. You know, the Levi, the priest and the Levite pass by. Maybe they're selfish. There's ritual uncleanness, perhaps. There are a whole bunch of reasons they may pass by, but nevertheless, the Samaritan doesn't. You know, pride of the passers-by, perhaps. Um, now, if you had a story from another worldview, you could feature the good priest or the good Levite. Okay, they stop to, you know, uh, uh, help this guy who's bloody all over. Uh, they may be ceremonial unclean. They may not be able to complete their particular mission that's so, mo that's so important. So you could, have a you could have the same parable with a very different purpose in it, but Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He wants to make the point. Um, now, every reporter then, you might think, well, gee, you're just saying, and those of you who have ever taken a journalism course or heard of it, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how? You know, the five W's and the H. Who, what, when, where, why, how? Simple, easy as that? Well, no because you're always making decisions coming out of a particular worldview. Who's the face of your story? That's an expression journalists use. Who's your protagonist? Who are you, who are you going to select to represent a bigger problem or a bigger difficulty? You know, who? And it can, be very, it can vary a lot. For example, a few years ago, I mean, it still is, but maybe it's sadly not as controversial as it once was, when there started to be wrestling matches between young men and young women or girls and boys, uh, I saw stories right then from different worldviews that told the story in different ways. The New York Times had a story saying, well, of course, boys should wrestle against girls in this highly competitive way. 
you know, they're, they're all human beings, let them wrestle with each other. This is a great victory for mankind, womankind, humankind, for them to do it. There are other people who say, well, it's just not appropriate, really. I mean, they're not supposed to be touching each other in particular places, which you have to do if you're going to be a successful wrestler. So I saw other stories from a very different worldview. Uh, so who are the faces? You know, the face on the one hand, you know, a 15-year-old a, a girl who wanted to wrestle. The face on the other story, a 15-year-old boy who, while certainly respecting women, just did not want to go feeling women in those particular ways. Uh, what's your nut graph? You know, what's the essence of your story? What facts are most important? You know, any story whatsoever, there are going to be 50 facts. You know, how do you select the dozen that you have room for that are going to be most important? Uh, who are your most trusted sources? Who are you going to rely on? Uh, are you going to, if you have a story, let's say, about uh, you know, LGBT issues, are you going to look to a, a church minister who's orthodox? Are you going to look for someone who's very heterodox? Uh, what's your kicker? That's a journalistic expression. And by the way, am I blocking the screen for you? And is there, well, I guess, this guy have to live with it? Okay, carry on. Um, <laughs> you know, what's your kicker? Kicker is the last line of the story, essentially. Uh, the, the idea you want to leave in your readers' minds. Uh, and then how high or low in the ladder of abstraction will you go? And that's what I want to turn to right now, the ladder of abstraction. This is, this is useful in journalism, but I think it's also useful in preaching. It's the single most useful tool we've found in training reporters. And to write visually in a way that gets people viscerally being able to understand what's going on, you want to descend the ladder. Give you an example here. Uh, I got here today uh, to Mid-America Reform Seminary using uh, locomotion for using my automotive mobility, uh, using transportation. Those are pretty abstract terms, up the ladder. I can come down the ladder to motor vehicle. I can come down the ladder to car. I can come down the ladder, say, to a Ford Fiesta or some other brand of a car. I can come down to what's the color of the car and so forth. So, you know, what's the license plate? The more specific you get, the more people can understand and feel the scene. And so reporters learn to write visually. Script writers learn to write visually. You want to you actually be able to show what's going on in words. Um, that's something I think it's useful in preaching also. Uh, you know, I, I would like to say that, that people who listen to a sermon, they'll come away remembering all the theological points, whether it's three points or, or one point or somewhat more. But, but you, know, you probably perceive this, very often they'll come away remembering a particular story that you told to illustrate a theological point. That's, that's the way we tend to function as, as humans. Uh, politicians tend to be high in the ladder. Certainly, when it comes to abortion, uh, the, the defenders of abortion tend to be high in the ladder. Sometimes pro-life people are high in the ladder also, and that's something we, have, we, we need to grow out of, basically. Pro-choice is obviously a high in the ladder team. Uh, term. Choice. Well, what kind of choice are you talking about? Is it a choice for cafeteria? Is it a choice for what kind of car to drive? Well, no, it's a choice of life or death. But, you know, pro-abort don't want to really talk about abortion. So pro-choice, that's high in the ladder. Pro-life, pro uh, you know, we should talk about babies. We should talk specifically about, about moms and dads. Uh, pro-life is a, is a good generic term. It's better than than the, the term used in most major newspapers these days, namely anti-abortion or, or sometimes even anti-choice, but still high in the ladder. We want to come down the ladder to human life. We want to come down the ladder to unborn child. Uh, the big, the, the most helpful development over the past 20 years uh, uh, has been the, the proliferation of ultrasound machines at pregnancy resource centers all over the place, and other places too, because that allows a person to see not just a baby, but my baby. And that makes a huge difference in life or death decisions. So coming down the ladder is important in reporting. I'd say it's also important often in, uh, in preaching. Uh, the expression show, don't tell, being low in the ladder. Uh, human interest, specific detail. Uh, street level, not sweet level. Uh, pavement pounding, not thumb sucking. This is what we tell our reporters. You know, get out and actually, actually observe and watch and see and talk with people. Don't just sit in your office, suck on your thumb in an air-conditioned office and, uh, and pour out opinionating. Uh, E.B. White, who was co-author of a wonderful little book, uh, any of you ever have the, the Elements of Style by Strunk and White? Okay, Doctor Strange. Uh, the rest of you, it's, 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 it's small, it's, it's succinct, it's, uh, it's good, it's, it's great. It's been, it's been through, I don't know, six different editions now, but uh, 
Anyway, E.B. White, who also wrote, wrote a couple of very fine children's books, but was a fine editor, he said, don't write about man, capital M, write about a man. Uh, and that's useful advice, I think, is in, in practice by, by journalists. And Christian journalists need to learn this. I'll explain when I go into uh, the history of journalism, uh, the, the way that, that Christian journalists understood this, and then for a time they started to forget about it when high in the ladder was traction and lost their audiences. Uh, the prodigal son, another example, uh, an example of low on the ladder of abstraction. Uh, it's not just abstract troubles, it's hunger. Uh, the prodigal son, the, the younger son, as you know, wants to be fed with the pods that the pigs are eating. Um, so going low in reporting. Uh, here are questions to, to ask, and, and again, in terms of sermon preparation, I would think even in, in, in writing about, writing about uh, theology in ways that non-scholars will read, uh, you want to ask questions. What happened? What's an example of that? Usually this is what we train people to think. What's, what's it like? What exactly did you see? You know, we'll tell reporters, if you see, if you're standing in front of a house and you see that it's, that it's, uh, that it's, it's, it's white, you should not just assume that it's white all over. You know, 99% of the time it's going to be, but you should go around to the side of the house and make sure it's white all the way around before you describe it as a white house. So. What exactly did you see? What precisely did he say? Uh, journalism ethics, if it's within quotation marks, has to be precisely what the person said. You can leave out sometimes the ums and ahs and things like that, but you don't change around quotations. What was the turning point? Okay, this again is very important if you think of camo, you know, protagonist, antagonist, mission obstacles. What, what, what created a change at some point? What's the turning point? And then ask, what's your worst experience? This is the way when you, uh, when you're trying to get a person talking, uh, superlatives is a very useful thing to do. Uh, what's your worst experience? What's your best moment? What's the hardest task? Gets people to think a little bit and, and then off and talk. And that's what you, that's what you were trying to, uh, to achieve. Uh, knowing your worldview helps you descend the ladder. And I will, I will descend the ladder right now by descending the straw. <laughs> um, this is what we call, and again, I'm going through this quickly. If, if any of you find this interesting, you want to learn more than, uh, you know, reforming journalism. Um, if, you, uh, if you don't want to shell out, I don't know, eighteen ninety-five or whatever it costs, okay. Luke there is holding it up. But, uh, yeah, if you don't want to do that, just, uh, just email me, marvin.olaski at gmail.com, and I can, I can send you uh, an electronic copy, uh, which won't cost you anything. But, uh, yeah, I do, I do recommend that book. And this is what we talk about, the thaw approach to writing. Well, actually, I looked the other day, you know, you forget what you've, what you've written. I'm not actually sure I put it in the book. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Uh, I'll have to look and see. Anyway, the thaw approach, useful to have. Thinking, hunting, analyzing, writing. In other words, before you go out, you have to think, okay, how am I understanding the story? What do I think the basis of the story is? And then you may change. You, may, you, you will probably learn a lot that causes you to, to change how you perceive the whole thing. But everyone goes out, every reporter goes out with some worldview. Um, and, and you need to know, okay, which pieces of metal to pick up, which to leave behind. Otherwise, you just have a report, not a story. Um, you have to be ready to shift while you're hunting. So you, you, you think about it, what do I think this is about? Where am I gonna go looking? Who am I gonna talk with? And then you, the more you learn, you, you shift it, you learn things, but you're hunting for a specific detail which will affect your thinking about things. Then you are, uh, you are analyzing then what you have, uh, and then eventually you are writing it. But it's that whole process uh, that you have to go through, and, and I can explain more about that later if you're interested. Uh, why have a biblical worldview? Okay, this is, this, is a, this is a dumb question in lots of ways, but I'm trying, I sometimes try to explain this to, uh, to non-Christians. And essentially, uh, you know, to understand a house, you read the blueprints. This is oversimplified. You know, here's the house that God has made for us, namely, namely the, uh, the world. Uh, here's, here's our... Blueprints is oversimplifying it, but here's our, here's our thing that helps us understand how this world is made. The house my, my wife and I uh, bought in Austin in 1997, uh, the builder of the house at first lived next door. And it's a really tall house on the, uh, on the side of a hill uh, in Texas with a little Texas brag. It's called Edwards Mountain, but it's really a hill. But it's kind of a steep driveway, and it has these, these big metal posts. And it's a tall house, and so... If, I don't know what it would do in an actual hurricane with winds over 75 miles per hour, but you know we've had we've had 
maybe 55 mile per hour winds, and at the top, it's like a little bit like being on a ship, it actually sways a little bit. And that got me wondering, and so I asked the builder, uh, who lived next door, and he was able to say, well, no, don't worry about it, here are these posts, they're really thick, they're deep down, they're in, they're in, they're in the, the, the rock, uh, it's not going anywhere. Um, and, you know, happily, uh, in a sense, uh, God, God lives next door. I mean, he's left us the Bible. Uh, we can see it, we can read it, we can understand how this, what, how this house of ours is constructed. And so a world, we talk about biblical objectivity. Namely, um, the old journalism was, well, objectivity is really a balancing of subjectivities. You talk to person X, you talk to person Y, you quote them both, and voila, objectivity. Well, not necessarily so. I mean, X and Y may both be, may both be way off. Um, maybe yes, maybe no. It doesn't necessarily leave you uh, with objectivity if you just quote a couple of people. Biblical objectivity is trying to describe the world God has made in the way he helps us to understand by giving us the Bible. Uh, and it's very different from either the, the balancing of subjectivities approach or the, um, you know, the, the existentialist subjectivity approach where you just sort of give your opinion and with no real basis except uh, maybe your feelings at that particular time. And as Bob Dylan's saying, you've got to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, maybe the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And so, you know, as I try to explain to, to skeptical journalists, why is having a biblical worldview particularly important now? Uh, the, the pressures to join some big political association or become part of a particular faction, to become part of a particular tribe, and just, and just tell the news from that tribe's perspective, whatever it is, those, those, uh, those pressures are immense right now. Uh, as we talked about last night, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post have monetized that. I mean, they no longer try to, to have stuff that's useful to say both, both conservatives and liberals. Uh, they, they, have, they have become very financially successful, uh, even while losing a lot of local advertising and a lot of local readership, they've become very successful by selling online subscriptions all across the country, in some cases all around the world. Uh, and it's worked because they have a particular perspective and they push it hard. Uh, Fox News has become successful by pushing a conservative perspective. Um, that's a, that can be a problem at times. Uh, you know, at World, we are, we are certainly theologically conservative in terms, of, in terms of biblical inerrancy. We also tend to be politically conservative, but uh, we've had, we, we've differed with a lot of conservatives on questions of admitting refugees, on some immigration questions. Um, I've worked Many years ago, I worked with uh, then-Governor George W. Bush of Texas in developing what was called compassionate conservatism at the time. So we deviate from, from some run-of-the-mill conservatism in a way that causes some of our readers uh, uh, dyspepsia. Uh, but that's who we are. And we, we, try, we, try to be, we try to read the Bible and apply it, and we'll explain what we're doing. Uh, we don't try to hide. And, um, you know, the, we get letters saying, I disagree with you on this particular thing, but nevertheless, I mean, I, I know you take this seriously, you're trying to apply the Bible, you have credibility, and so that we get along fine uh, for the most part. But that's a, the, the pressure these days is enormous just to join a particular faction, and that's the way to make more money, essentially, either on the right or on the left. Um, so it's a, hard, it's a hard thing right now. These are, uh, what could I say? These are, these are uh, uh, some journalists who have decided to get fat and happy by pandering to certain perspectives. Um, you know, if, if I wanted to go political, well, I mean, I'll give you the next one. Let's say these are Republicans uh, searching for solutions. So I suppose I could get political and go back to Democrats here, but that would hardly be fair. Um, anyway, um, yeah, we, we believe, you can hold up the book again, Luke, yeah, okay, you know, we believe in biblical objectivity and that's, what we, that's how we hope to reform journalism. Reform, as you, as you may imagine, having, uh, having a double meaning. Biblical objectivity. Uh, here's, the, here's the question, how do you avoid either underusing the Bible, which is the tendency in liberal denominations, or sometimes overusing the Bible, which is sometimes the tendency in some very, in some very uh, I don't know if I want to, it's not really a proper use of conservative, but uh, I suspect you know what I mean. If, if, if someone says, well, uh, I, I have a special message from God that we are supposed to locate a highway in this particular place, uh, we should perhaps be skeptical about that. Because some things, some things biblically are very clear, some things are unclear. 
we get closest to reality in our limited and fallen way by thinking biblically. And we don't want to underuse the Bible when it's clear. I mean, for example, we have, we have today people saying, well, well, the, the, the Bible is actually pro-abortion. I had a, I've had an email discussion with one person on this. And, uh, you know, that is, a, is a, uh, a radical example of underusing the Bible when it's clear. Uh, or or uh, uh, adultery is fine. Uh, again, a radical example of underusing the Bible. But don't overuse the Bible when it's not. And the analogy we use here, which we found very useful, uh, is, is to Whitewater Rapids. Uh, the World Business Office is in Asheville, North Carolina, and 50 miles west of there are some very good whitewater rapids. When we had World Journalism, at, World Journalism Institute classes in, uh, in Asheville, uh, we would take the students, would-be journalists, out, to, the, uh, out to, the, to go whitewater rapiding. There, it's not a, I, I spent a week going down the Grand Canyon once. It's not like that. It's not, uh, it's not, they're not waterfalls. But they're, they're, you know, there's some white water. There's some excitement. Uh, very often, people end up in the water. And if I am captaining a particular rubber raft, just about everyone at some point ends up in the water. Uh, <laughs> and thus, it was a very useful training device for journalists. Who's, who's, uh, uh, they, they, they would tell us, uh, hey, this is actually pretty safe. But uh, if you get thrown out of the boat, just float downhill, feet first, feet, feet first uh, and someone will pick you up, which is what happens. They say, do not try to walk, because you know, in three, three people out of 10,000 actually uh, who got thrown out of the boat, did that, got their foot caught under a rock, pitched forward, and drowned. Uh, that's, a, that's a very useful thing to remember. I mean, there are real rapids. It's not a theme park. Uh, there is danger. And this is what we think of when we talk about rapids. There are six classes of rapids. Uh, and here we try, this is the metaphor we use. So class one, when there's an explicit biblical command, you know, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, class two, when there's an implicit command, uh, and I can go through that in a, in a moment. Uh, um, you know, class three, when there's a preponderance of scripture, you look for the whole counsel of God, and uh, I'll give an example of that. Class four, when you study history and human nature, and you can derive some things from that. Class five, it's less clear. There's some guidance from the study of history and a biblical understanding of human nature, but, but not necessarily uh, something that's, that's surefire. In class six, there's no biblical guidance. You know, I would say, for example, on, on this question, uh, which roiled Austin politics uh, and probably other places, where to, where to cite a particular toll road. Uh, the Bible does not give you particular instructions on that. That would be an example of a class of the class six rapids. Uh, class one is explicit. Okay, you shall not murder. Now, of course, we sadly have the add-on in modern America, well, you shall not murder unless the victims are tiny. Then you can do it. Uh, you shall not commit adultery. And again, you know, these are sort of sarcastic parentheses here, you know, add-on, unless, unless true love beckons, in which case, go right ahead. Uh, you shall not steal, and the add-on, well, unless you think you've been treated unfairly. You shall not bear false witness, unless maybe if someone has lied to you, then you can do reciprocal lying. Uh, and you shall not covet, which, of course, is something we, we all, as Paul knew, we all tend to, we all tend to do. But again, yeah, uh, if you, if you, if you cover particular things these days, uh, what an advertisement tells you to cover it, then maybe that's virtuous. So a little bit of sarcasm here, but these are pretty explicit. And it is, it's not that hard to understand. Uh, I'll give you a class two. Uh, uh, well, I'll give you a class two plus, because this is how careful we want to be. Um, you know, ab abortion is something I've, I've written a couple of books about, and I'm, and I'm 30 years after, after earlier writing, I'm, I'm embarking on a new book. So I am deep into the history of abortion, uh, and that's, that's basically what, uh, what my, my book 30 years ago was about, and now with a lot of new research, I'm, I'm uh, redoing it and adding to it. Uh, but I would say even abortion, in a sense, is a, is a two plus. That is, it's, it's, it's just one small step. Obviously, uh, I think if you, if you know science at all, as well as, as well as what God says in Psalm 139 and lots of other places, the unborn child is a human being. Uh, but it is true that we do not have an explicit command, do not murder tiny human beings. Uh, it's not hard. It's right there. Uh, but there's one small step there, and that's why I would call it two plus. It's still, it's still so, so clear that I'm just amazed that, that, and saddened that, that some people don't see it. But nevertheless, we want to be very careful about, about uh, saying that you know, what's explicit as opposed to what's implicit. And I'll give you some other examples, but, but 
uh, reforming journalism goes into this a lot. So let me go to, to, to class three, because that's, uh, that's a really difficult thing at times. I've had, I've had uh, uh, you know, debates with, uh, um, uh, with Jim Wallace, for example, uh, uh, who's, who's, a, who's a, uh, way on the left, about helping the poor. Uh, and I think you can see biblically, you know, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted, be open-handed. Uh, you can see that generosity is important. You can see that work is important. Work is important to earn money by the sweat of our brow, also to grow in patience and character. It is a great blessing from God to be able to work and to have, and to have work that, that, uh, that glorifies him. Um, and so uh, uh, Jim Wallace would say, well, the generosity principle is such that, that uh, you, you should just be, you, you shouldn't worry about the work component. You should, you should create, create, let's say, a universal income that everyone gets, work or not. But then I go to, to uh, uh, the Bible where Jesus asks, you know, the person who's uh, spent 38 years at the, at the Pool of Siloam, you know, he asks, do you want to get well? Um, and here's where our class three rapids comes in. Uh, you know this, this famous verse, uh, which probably a lot of you memorized, uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirst and give you drink? And King will answer him, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That verse, in my experience, uh, cuts both ways. I spent a lot of time back in the 1990s uh, talking with homeless guys and other people with very bad drug problems and other difficulties. And if you say, as you did to the least of these, you did to me, well, if you, if you are just giving money, which being used for drugs or for an alcoholic, uh, I mean, you know, putting heroin into the veins of Jesus. Um, this, is, this is a sad thing to do when you can actually be, be destructive. And uh, when I was writing this type of stuff 30 years ago, it was, it was, it was uh, a little uh, out of the mainstream, but now there are lots of good books out uh, called, you know, I wrote a book called The Tragedy of American Compassion, which, which goes into this and, and explains why historically uh, just handing out money is not a good idea. Uh, but there are a lot of books like it now with titles like When Helping Hurts and so forth. So that's why I call it a class three rapids because uh, I, I don't doubt, I don't doubt uh, you know, Jim Wallace's belief or, or Ron Sider, who I've had very friendly exchanges with. I mean, they're, they're, they're on the left. Uh, I, don't, I don't doubt their, their Christian belief. Uh, I just think in, in Jim's case that he just interprets things according to using particular verses and ignoring lots of other stuff in the Bible. But this to me would be an example of, uh, of just trying to understand uh, how, to, how to avoid uh, saying the Bible says something which actually it doesn't say. And this is a yeah, rapper's disagreement. Uh, class four, history and human nature. Um, when um, uh, there, you've, you've read this in the, in the news, of course, uh, uh, lots of movement to the left on college campuses and lots of other places over the past year. And there, there's, I mean, Bernie Sanders calls himself a democratic socialist. The problem with that, I mean, there are a number of problems with that, but one problem is that uh, when push comes to shove, when you have to decide what to do and whether to force people to do it, uh, dem the democratic part of socialism historically just disappears. Uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Uh, words of Lord Acton in the, in the 19th century. And we've seen historically what happened. Soviet Union, China, Cuba. I interviewed uh, a couple of years ago uh, Venezuelan refugees in the Miami area. Um, yeah, the, the democracy goes out the window. At a certain point, do I really believe in socialism, which, which in many ways goes against the human nature that God has given us? Am I going to push it or am I going to give up on it uh, in order to be democratic? And time after time, uh, it's, it's give, up on, give up on democracy. And class six again, this is a waterfall. Basically, a class six rapid, you go over, you're likely to die. And that's why we don't want to overuse the Bible. We don't want to say that things that are our personal preference. Uh, uh, I, one, one story, I, I knew a church where, uh, weird as it sounds, the, uh, I think the pastors were, were approving a particular type of tire, and I think they were condemning white wall tires, which may be, I don't, I don't well, I'll just say that's, I hope none of you are doing that as you, as you preach. Um, but uh, yeah, there are classics around in the time. You know, some, some of you are saying, yeah, white walls. So let me, leave you, let me leave you with five things, and then we have a little bit of time for some, uh, for some questions. Uh, 
Biblical objectivity includes self-awareness. I mean, here, I don't know if you can see this, but, uh, oops, go back to that. Um, yeah, here's, you know, we are, uh, uh, we are not descended from monkeys, although you may be fooled at first glance. Um, but, uh, yeah, we tend to look in the mirror and we, and we see ourselves as, as more powerful and smarter than we actually are. So we have to be self-aware that God is, God is wise, we are not. Um, and so biblical objectivity includes, you know, that we are dependent on God, uh, not like uh, Kohlberg's thing, the highest stage of intellectual development is, is being independent of God. Uh, secondly, yes, street level, not sweet level. Uh, it is so easy just to take a press release that some official has thrown out and just run with that as opposed to going out and actually seeing for yourself. Sensational facts, understated prose. Again, you know, the, uh, the British slogan, keep calm and carry on, is a, is a wonderful slogan. These days, journalism sells. If, it's, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, so the more sensational, the better. The more anger, the better. Uh, anger brings eyeballs. Uh, and in the world, we, we, try, we try to be calm and emphasize biblical objectivity. Uh, four, uh, we hear all these doomsday things. Uh, I, I grew up a 20th century Boston Red Sox fan, which meant uh, at Fenway Park, uh, there would often be a, a, a loud fan sitting, sitting behind me who if the Red Sox fell behind two or nothing in the first inning, he'd be yelling, down the drain, down the drain. We hear some of that now, and you know the sky is falling well. There are all sorts of bad things going on, but, but we still have, have hope and faith that God indeed is holding up the sky, and we are not going to prematurely uh, give up and say the game's over because we're behind by a little bit right now. And then five, the most important thing of all, God saves sinners. Uh, a lot of you probably know this is, this is J.I. Packer's very succinct summary of the gospel. Uh, God saves sinners. Uh, and that's the, the, uh, the most important three words, I think, uh, uh, summing up theology that, uh, that I know. And that's a hard thing, you know, that saved a wretch like me. And, and some people, they want to change the word, so it's not wretches. Well, that's who we are. Uh, God saves sinners. We are wretched without him. And we emphasize salt, not sugar. Uh, there are lots of publications. Again, the, 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 way to, the way to make the most money in journalism these days is to, is to sell anger. Uh, probably the second best way is to just deliver sugar, you know, just, just happy talk and news. Uh, and we, we try to be salt, which is uh, a preservative, uh, and it also makes things a lot more tangy. Uh, that's it, that's it for, for lecture number one. Um, comments, questions, differences. Do you will not hurt my feelings if you disagree? Uh, and uh, any questions you want to ask, ask away. Yes, sir? When you say understated prose, uh, can you give kind of an example of what that would be like? <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you uh, a hot recent example. Um, in, the, in the last election, uh, clearly, there were, in a few places, there were some things that were going on. Uh, as far as I've seen, looking at all the data I can find and listening to, to various judges uh, who were looking at this data, uh, there, there, there were small things. There wasn't enough to, uh, to, to alter the, uh, the, the presidential election. Uh, and that's the way we reported in the world. I mean, we reported that, yeah, this, the, there were a few votes here and a few votes there. Um, there are, uh, you know, overstated pros. An example would be stolen election. That's overstated pros. Uh, you know, I don't know if some of you feel differently on it. If you, if you have, if you have uh, uh, factual information that I haven't seen, I'll be glad to look at it. But that's overstatement. Uh, you know, the in. Uh, I was a poll watcher in uh, Northeast Philadelphia when I was in college in 1970, and uh, yeah, there were there were a couple things going on and, and a few votes here and there, but there wasn't enough to change the course of the election. So, yeah, stolen election, it's overstated pros. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, I think I, I think I miss, misspoke, or maybe I misread it. I thought it said understated pros, like oh. buildings on fire and someone says oh. it's a little hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would that be? I mean. Yeah, that that would be that. That's a good example of understated prose. Uh, or, um, you know, if there's a, um, um, I mean, well, that you know, that would be uh, 
how to, how to put that. We, we don't want to just cater to anger. So we want to use understated prose when we explain factually what's going on, but we're not hysterical about it. We're not yelling down the drain. We're not yelling stolen election. We, we want to have, we want to report when there, when there is sensational news, we want to report it, but we don't want to, you know, we, we will say, um, we, we will say there was a murder and, but we won't necessarily go through every single bloody detail of it. Uh, we, we, you know, sometimes we have to. Um, sometimes we, we have described what goes on during an abortion. Um, but we want to be calm. We, you know, even, even when, when things make us very angry, we don't want to just cater to anger. Uh, we, want to, we want to cater to reality. We want people to understand factually what's going on. Uh, so, and if it's sensational, so be it. But we're, we're just trying to be anti-anger in the situation. We want people to be calm. Uh, you know, the case you gave, if, you, if, it's, if there's a fire and you say it's merely hot, that's, that's not really what we mean by understatement, because that's factually incorrect. We want, we want factual accuracy, but not hysteria. We don't want to say the sky is falling, basically, unless it really is, and sometimes it may be. Uh, in 1917 in the Soviet Union, in Russia at that point, the sky was falling in November of 1917. But I know I get letters sometimes from people saying, well, you know, America is becoming like the Soviet Union. Well, no. I mean, I, I was in the Soviet Union, and, and, uh, and there's a big difference. So, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes. Is there any way out of this uh, money dilemma? Years ago, I remember seeing an episode of the Donahue show in which his guest was the Soviet Russian equivalent of a Donahue host. Uh huh. Vladimir Posner? I don't remember his uh, name, but uh. on his show, this Soviet uh, person made the point his American audience was pushing back your media is all driven by the government, the Communist Party, etc. He said, yes, and your media is driven by money and profit, to which Americans were aghast, no, it's driven by truth. But what I don't see, I mean, given what you said, is there any way out of this money-driven news media? I mean, I miss, what I miss is shows like the McLaughlin Report, where you got to hear a spectrum of views and they spar with each other. That, I don't find that anywhere, uh, obvious at least, uh, out, on, out in the world of media journalism. Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, <clears throat> well, money always does have some influence. <clears throat> the way it used to work in journalism, uh, the, the financial angle drove um, against extremes because if you had a newspaper in a city and, and most cities had only one newspaper, uh, that was basically a license to print money because grocery stores, department stores, other local institutions would advertise in the newspaper uh, unless the owners got so angry with the newspaper that they would boycott it in some way. So the goal was not to anger people. Uh, this is not to say, I mean, I grew up with the Boston Globe and worked on the, on the Globe for a while. I mean, it was a very liberal newspaper, but it still did not want to anger conservative readers because you wanted to keep those, you wanted to maintain your, your audience, which would include people on the right as well as people on the left because it would have baseball scores and crossword puzzles and TV listings and stuff like that. You didn't want to anger them because as long as you didn't anger them, this was going to be a very profitable enterprise. And reporters reluctantly went along with that. There were a lot of reporters who were ideologically committed, but they understood that they had to have some reserve there in, in the way they were expressing themselves. So the, the finances drove, drove newspapers somewhat towards moderation. Today it's the exact opposite because the advertising money isn't there anymore. Uh, Facebook and other things have, have, have just soaked up that money. Uh, and, and, and Twitter, which, which I'm on and so forth, so I'm part of the problem. Uh, but, you know, it just, it just soaks up all that advertising money. And the way to make money is you can't just depend on your locality. If you can develop a national audience in some way, then you can be profitable. And that's what the New York Times and the Washington Post have found. So they don't go, they, they have no reserve at all 
I mean, the Washington Post during the Trump administration, day after day after day, I mean, I, I was critical of President Trump on, on a whole lot of things, but the Washington Post, you just knew automatically it was going to be anti-Trump all the time with six stories blasting this or this or this. It had no credibility, but it was very profitable because it was able then to sell electronic subscriptions all across the country. And electronic subscription basically cost you nothing. If you have to actually deliver a newspaper, their printing cost, their delivery cost would sometimes soak up half the budget, just those two things. Electronic subscriptions, wow, that's great. Uh, and the New York Times, by being a national and actually international paper, and the Washington Post by, by essentially being you know, a Washington paper, they have, they, have, they have done great with electronic subscriptions. Newspapers elsewhere in the country are just failing, going out of business, laying off staff. Uh, it's been a very difficult situation for journalists. So what's gonna change in that? Um, you know, I hope, I hope at some point that, uh, that people will have enough of that. Uh, and we'll just say, I actually wanna see a news source that's credible. If the news source always agrees with my own prejudices, then, then I'm not learning anything. Uh, in world, basically, we, we try to, we, we tend to be supportive of the views of lots of our readers, but every issue I wanna have some challenge in there. Uh, something to really make people think, oh, I need to think more about this, or read more about this, or learn more about this. Um, that's an unusual thing. I'm glad we're able to do it. We've had a, we've had a board that allows us to do it, but that's highly unusual. What's gonna change it, um, uh, except, except God's, God's grace, God's providence, God's mercy? Um, you know, because um, uh, politics is, is, is moving in this very polarized way. Uh, we haven't been this polarized since 1861, and bad stuff happened then. Um, we were very polarized in 1800, and God was merciful in a lot of ways. You had the Second Great Awakening developing. You had other things that, 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 that happened. But I'll, I'll explain more about this maybe in, in lecture two, which is on history. But right now, yes, sir. Um, so kind of jumping off on your comment about social media, like, yeah, there's a lot of algorithms that kind of cater towards people creating an echo chamber. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that and how, how the church can kind of combat against it? Well, I, I should say the hard thing is that, is that churches are also facing this. In a way, there are, there are Republican churches and there are Democratic churches, which is not, which is not the way things are supposed to be. Um, <clears throat> so how do you handle this? Uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, actually yesterday morning, we, we, my wife and I left uh, Springfield, Illinois. So I was just doing some, uh, some Lincoln research and in connection, I'm, I'm just seeing the, the analogies between the battle against slavery and the battle against abortion. Um, and Lincoln gave a speech in, in New Haven uh, when he was sort of making his eastern swing and, and preliminary part of his running for president. Uh, he gave a speech which was with, with Lincoln's wit. I mean, Lincoln was faced enormous abuse. Uh, you know, there were cartoons in the, in the Lincoln uh, Presidential Museum and Library in Springfield depicting him as, a, as an ape, uh, as a vampire, as all kinds of really creative and crazy and nasty stuff. Interesting to see. Uh, so he faced a lot of abuse, but he always responded with wit. Uh, and um, so, I, so I, I just recommend, recommend reading his speechifying as a way for, for number one, for a pastor to respond to some hostility from whatever side. Uh, you know, don't get angry and start, and start shooting back. Uh, uh, you know, and, and talk, talk calmly and, uh, and wittily if possible. Um, that's a, a useful thing to do. But here's, here's the problem. Uh, Lincoln, in talking about, about slavery, uh, said that, hey, a lot of people just don't want to talk about it. This is, this is obviously a burning issue. You can't avoid it. But some people just don't want to talk about it. And th so they say, in the North, don't talk about it because we don't have slavery there. In the South, don't talk about it because there is slavery there. Uh, and in general discourse, uh, political discourse, don't talk about it because you don't want to bring morality into politics. And the church, don't talk about it because you don't want to do politics from the pulpit. Uh, and so the result is it's not being talked about. And, uh, and of course it was talked about. It, it, it increasingly got talked about and it could not be avoided. It was, it was the irrepressible conflict at that point. So what's a pastor to do? Um, I, you know, there, there are, for example, coming back to this abortion issue that I'm looking at, uh, 
there are so many places in Scripture where um, the, the value and significance of human life is affirmed that it's not as if the pastor has to wait you know, once a year, maybe on, on the anniversary or the Sunday just before Roe v. Wade, maybe to mention something. Maybe just in, in passing, you want to do it. Now, some people say, well, you can't do that because so many people have had abortions. I mean, maybe one out of every five women has had abortions. There's probably some in your congregation. You don't want to offend them. Well, uh, in terms of, I mean, of, of talked with lots of people who have gone through that, who have had abortions, and, and they have to deal with it in some way. It's inescapable. It's there. And if you try to bury it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create all kinds of psychological problems at some point. You have to deal with it. And, and it's not, it is not an unforgivable sin uh, or anything like that. You just got to deal with it. And, and pastors can do this. I mean, John Piper in Minneapolis uh, has done this a lot. I've, I've heard other pastors do it in a, in a calm and compassionate way. But it's important to do as opposed to, well, we can't talk about it because, well, is there something political about it? Well, there's life and death about it. Uh, and, and I don't think pastors should be evasive. So um, anyway, does that, does that get to it? Am I, okay, thank, good. Other, other questions? Yes, sir. Well, I mean, here this gets back to, for example, Facebook and the problem that um, increasingly you, you, in a sense, you create your own news environment. Uh, you, you are friends with some people, you read what they post, you, and then Facebook itself has a pretty heavy thumb on it. Um, the, the disadvantage, okay, growing up in, in Boston where, where the Boston Globe was the dominant paper, there was a another paper called the Herald, but it didn't have a whole lot of sway. Um, the, the disadvantage was you got the, you got the globe's worldview, which was a moderately, a moderately liberal worldview. The advantage is that you didn't just get your own worldview unless you happen to be exactly along tracking along the globe. Uh, so you learned other things. I think conservatives have an advantage generally in American culture because, because our popular culture, our, our largest media with a few exceptions, our movies, and so forth tend to be from a liberal perspective. So conservatives get the conservative perspective from people they know, and they get a liberal perspective just sort of watching television or seeing movies or things like that. That's actually very useful. Liberals don't have that advantage, and so the echo chamber becomes more radical all the time, and you see your own newsfeed, and you think your own newsfeed represents things. Um, back in 1972, when Pauline Kael uh, was a was a noted movie reviewer in New York. She lived in Manhattan, and 1972 was was a sweeping, massive election victory for Richard Nixon, and she was astounded by it. She said she didn't know a single person who voted for Nixon, and yet 60% of the country did. And then if you look at our last election, I mean there are lots of people who are very firm Trump supporters, and they were amazed and astounded at the election results and thought there must be a stolen election or things like that because they didn't know anyone who voted for Joe Biden. So that's a real problem. And in some ways, we're doing, you know, there's a book called The Great Sort, um, um, gerrymandering uh, uh, congressional districts, so they tend to be, you know, uh, more monolithic in some ways. That's a problem. That all pushes us towards um, radicalism. If you want to read my, my favorite novel, uh, it's called The Cypresses Believe in God. It's by uh, Jose Hiranea, so spelled uh, G I R O. N-E-L-L-A, Jose Hiranea. It's called The Cypresses Believe in God. He wrote it in the 1950s. It's about the Spanish Civil War, about the five years that led to the Spanish Civil War. And I've written columns about this every, every few years because of, of uh, um, you know, we're, we are, I, I don't think we are going to have a civil war in five years, but, you know, the, the polarization is increasing that, you know, 20 years maybe, I don't know. It's, it's a problem. And if you, if you want to see just a really wonderfully written book, uh, The Cypresses Believe in God, unfortunately, 
the 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 cheapest copy out there that I've seen is about sixty dollars because it's a, it's rare now. But if a public library has it or a university library or any of you, if you have uh, good contacts with publishers and they want and they can get the rights to reprint it, uh, there's a market out there. At least I've been trying to create a market uh, for it. So anyway, um, yeah, that's that's what's going on now. Wish I wish you were better. But the good news is right now for y'all and me, it's two o'clock. So time to stop. And uh, and I will see. I will see if any of you are back here in half an hour. I'll be. We'll see about you. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for your attention.